We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, and wherever you find your podcasts. Happy New Year! One of the great traditions at this time is looking back and seeing what you've learned over the past 12 months. So I've invited my colleague John, who works with me at Marshall Method Therapy, to share his picks of 2023 from the podcast, and I will share the guests who have impacted me the most and from whom I've learned ideas to help with my personal development or tools to use with my clients. John has a higher diploma in counselling from the Gilead School of Counselling. He is a registered member of the British Association for Counselling and Psychotherapy and has been working with couples for over 10 years. Just over six years ago, he began working with my team, Marshall Method Therapy. So I think the best place to start, John, would be just sort of explaining a bit about Marshall Method Therapy, how we work. What do you think makes my way, and by extension our way, of working together different from other couple counselling? I think that one of the key things is the mix between what might be thought of as like deeper psychology, understanding like psychodynamic models we base some of that work from, but also the using a very helpful kind of toolbox of practical tools. So when I'm thinking of that, I'm thinking of things like reflective listening. In fact, actually, one of the things I'm going to be doing this year is launching a new product that everybody can use. It's going to be an online course where you're going to have a chance to go through each of these tools. And obviously, the even better way of doing it is going through them with one of my team who can personalize these and also look at the underlying issues that we're sort of aware of, but only half aware of them. And sometimes actually seeing, for example, how things that happened in our childhood can still be impacting us today and that something your partner does is seen not just through the lens of what they've done, like they've loaded the dishwasher incorrectly, but it reminds you of a dynamic unconsciously that goes way back to your childhood. And sometimes if you can unhook those two things from each other, it makes it much easier to deal with the stuff in front of you rather than effectively the ghosts from the past putting their cold fingers over the back of your throat. Mm. I think that's a really good description that goes from the past. I think some of the clips and the guests that we're reviewing today really illustrate that really well. So do you use the podcast with your clients? Certainly, yes. Particularly when I see things that are appearing in that they're talking about. Uh, One of my choices today, for instance, is um, dealing with the lost inner child, which is because that's something I think we all have at varying levels. So using a podcast there where you have somebody that's really done a lot of kind of research and can talk very eloquently about it is a great starting point. And then you can bring what you've learnt back into the session and discuss it with your therapist and with your partner. So it often actually makes for some quite good discussions. And I I hope that when you find something interesting on the podcast that uh, you share it with your partner as well. So let's actually go for the very first choice of the one you've been talking about. 
Robert Jackman is a board-certified psychotherapist and the author of Healing Your Lost Inner Child, How to Stop Impulsive Reactions, Set Healthy Boundaries, and Embrace an Authentic Life. So why did this one stick out for you, John? I think because it's something, one, I could really identify with personally. It's kind of those emotional processes that come up that maybe could be labeled as irrational or have that actual childlike kind of quality. But I think it's a key element as well in a number of models of psychotherapy. There's inner child work, for instance, and so on. And it really helps identify how the child in us is still alive. And I think that's something that clients and couples coming in, that's quite a new concept. I just love this quote from your book about our our wounding is an inconvenient truth we wish would just go away. And we have some techniques for making it go away that I see all the time in my therapy room. And I really love these. So I think we're going to work through these five ones I've pulled out of ways that we hide the lost inner child from your book. And perhaps you can talk to me about them. The mm-hmm. first one is discounting. Mm-hmm. So I think that that when more people do that than they, they realize, I think that where they're pushing down, pushing away their sense of self and honor, where they're saying, oh, well, that's not anything, or others have had it worse, or where they're really not honoring their experience. It reinforces the narrative of less than. So it reinforces that was nothing, other people have had it worse, all of those sorts of expressions, where they're saying, I'm not even worthy to hold my wounding. And if your friends are listening to your stories of your childhood with their mouths open, that might just be a a clue that you're discounting. The next one is normalizing the abnormal. I suspect this might have been one of your specialities as a child. Well, very much, because of course, in our childhood families, this is all we know. So we're, we're looking around and we're seeing the dysfunction. And you, as I, have probably talked with folks where they come in and they'll say, well, this horrible thing happened, that horrible thing happened. And they're reading it off like a uh, grocery list. They're telling us this stuff, this horrific things, like it's nothing. So they have essentially become immune in a way to the intensity of the trauma. But that's, of course, a survival mechanism. I mean, that's how they survived it then, and that's how they're still surviving it today, because it's almost like too hot for them to touch. And so they're staying in this very protected space, almost where there's a lot of cotton between them and the reality of that trauma. You know, so we we need to honor that, but it definitely is, is continuing. This trauma is still sort of churning inside of them the whole time. And sometimes the thing they're normalizing actually is quite normal. I'm waving my fingers in the air like your parents got divorced. And yes, Mm -hmm. lots of other children in your class, their parents might have got divorced. But, you know, Mm -hmm. you're hiding the fact that this was a particularly bitter divorce with, you know, tears and uh, anger and uh, flouncing backwards and forwards. So that even if it is sort of quite common, it doesn't actually mean that this was normal in your family. Am I making any sense? Yeah, and I think that that is akin to the discounting. 
you know, because what we're saying is we're trying to make our experience not bad. So we're, I think, in, in those efforts, we're trying to make it palatable. We're trying to make it something that we can take in and hold, but we know it's not right. And so it's like we're sort of battling with our own narrative. I like what um, you know, he talks about there is our wounding is an inconvenient truth that just won't go away. And how we work, really, we have these techniques that develop to try and get rid of that. And in fact, we might be worth mentioning the other ones that uh, he talked about on that program, which is protecting other people. How do we protect other people from our pain? Well, I think it's like discounting our feelings and pushing them away. And we hide the pain, really. I think it's like we try to pretend it's not there. And, you know, we don't want to upset our parents because uh, we've spent a long time trying to protect them. Often, I have lots of clients where sometimes they feel more the parents than the parents. And, you know, that we will go to great lengths not to upset our parents, even today. I think that's very true. And I think that's an important process to go through to realize how our parents have actually created this situation it's not not a bl- we're not blaming them but it is important to see it because if you can't really see it you can't really deal with it and one of the reasons i do three generations or two generations back so i've got three generations in front of me when i'm looking at a family tree is because your parents were dealing with stuff from their parents and you know if we if we took it further back they were dealing stuff with their parents. You know, we've got inherited family trauma that's come down through the generations. So it's not pointing the finger, but by protecting other people, you're not actually meeting that lost inner child. And until you meet them, there's very little you can do to help them. And another way that we stop from seeing our lost inner child is denying healing is possible. Do you get clients that say, oh, it was a long time ago. Yes, it was painful, but there's nothing I can do about it now. Yes, because I think that they really can't see a way through or see how it even makes any kind of connection to anything. They go, well, yes, I know. Like you say, yes, I know that happened, but that was all a long time ago. The thing is we carry with us the things we've been affected by emotionally, even if we don't really Remember, I think there are different types of memory. There's kind of episodic memory. Remember what you had for breakfast, which is a certain way of remembering. And then there's kind of more what I would call embodied memory. Yeah, I love the title of the classic book about childhood trauma. In fact, trauma in general, the body keeps the score. It's Mm. actually locked in your body. And so when you get those sort of automatic reactions where you freeze or you want to flee it's probably some stored memory inside you. It's deep there, and your lost inner child is screaming sort of at that moment or is, is looking for help in some way. Yes, and I like that message really about this lost inner child that we, can't, we actually need to listen to it, not shut it up, because it's trying to tell us something. Yep, and that something is very important. The last sign that you are probably denying your lost inner child is avoiding bad memories. And this one is is really difficult because 
Uh, and this is a, a difficult job for us as therapists as well, because you don't want people to dig up all the gritty details of something really horrible, mm. and you don't want to make them relive it. But on the other end, you don't want to ignore it all altogether either. How do you find the middle way that acknowledges what happens without sort of poking the dead bodies too much? I think it's it's listening to the client really and gauging their responses. So in some ways being led because things the clients will say will give you a clue where those memories are. You can let them bring them forward, but it's also checking in and saying, tell me how you're feeling when you tell me about that. It's giving permission to help them regulate how much they dive into those memories. And you can support, and something we're going to talk about later, actually co-regulate. So you can provide the calm support and the presence and the acknowledgement that they're allowed to have these feelings. I mean, it, from my own therapy, bizarrely enough, the thing that has been the most powerful is just having somebody acknowledge my feelings. I mean, it is the like number one in the therapist tool bag, but it is so important because we've had so many people, at least in my family anyway, minimizing our feelings and saying, it's not important, it's a long time ago, et cetera, et cetera. And to be supported with somebody who says, you know, I accept what you say, I'm not going to to check your facts or anything else like that, because actually the facts don't matter. What matters is the feelings. So let's have the feelings and your feelings are acceptable. I think that's exactly right. And the, the interesting thing is with therapy in that sense, it's very simple, but very powerful. My next choice is Malcolm Stern. Malcolm is a psychotherapist who's worked with groups and individuals for nearly 30 years. And I found him particularly interesting because he works so much with groups and how one person in the group can help another person in a group in an entirely different way and how other people's material in the group brings up your material in a different kind of way. He's also the author of a book which has the most wonderful title. In fact, it's my favorite title from 2023. Slay Your Dragons with Compassion, 10 Ways to Thrive Even When It Feels Impossible. So I started off by asking him about the dragons he'd slain himself with compassion. The inspiration for this book was the dragon I needed to slay around my daughter's suicide. And coming to terms with something that is so abhorrent that you can't really get a, a grasp on it for a long time. And then having to find how to manage your state, how to manage your relationships, I'm not saying your, how to manage my relationships, how to manage my state, felt a, 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 a task that I needed to take on, that, I, that was being given to me to go, right, you have to get underneath this, allow the pain to suffuse you, and then find out what's needed in order to be able to go forwards and to make some sense of it, but also to honour the memory of my beautiful daughter, Melissa. I'm obviously very sad to hear about your daughter's uh, suicide. Uh, give us a, a picture of her as a person. Oh, God, she was the most beautiful, vibrant, effervescent young woman. She was 33 years old when she took her life. And she'd been married the year before to a lovely man called Ian and, and was very happy. But 10 years previously, she'd had a, a, a serious 
mental breakdown. And she rang me from her and, and said to me, Dad, I'm in, a, I'm in a lunatic asylum. I said, very funny, Melissa. And she passed the phone to a nurse. And actually, she was in intensive care psychiatric. She'd flipped out and, and run through the streets naked, abandoned all her possessions. And she said afterwards, it was almost one of the most freeing moments she'd ever had. Ten years went by and there was no sign of any return of this. She got married. She seemed to be incredibly happy. She, was a, she wore bright colours. She wore beautiful lipsticks. And she was, she was full of life. People loved her. And I started to sense that she was getting very sort of over-the-top manic again. And for a while, it was enjoyable. There was a lot of energy and buzz about it. And then she went where the other side of mania often goes, into a really deep, dark depression. And in that place, she was apparently in hell for about six or seven weeks before she ended up stepping off a bridge. And my picture of her is of of this delightful, magnificent young woman who then lost all her colour and became very pale and sad. And, And it's, you know, the extremes set into place. And what you say is how, in the book, how she reaches out to you but you were never able to find your own wisdom. You were blocked in some way by what I think we would call an unresolved wound. I mean, that must be incredibly painful that here you are, a professional in this field, and you can't help your own daughter because you are wounded too. I mean, try and help us understand this. Yes, it's a very good, it's a good call, actually, Andrew. The bottom line in this is I was 18 years old, living at home with my parents and my, with my 17-year-old sister, who went crazy one day. And, and to this day, she's now 71 and has never recovered. She's in a care home now. So I observed my sister being really wildly crazy. And I was terrified. And I didn't know how to deal with her. I didn't know how to speak to her. I didn't know how to help her. And I stood by as this sort of dumbstruck bystander. And so I had a real thing around mental illness. And when I was starting to work with with individuals as a psychotherapist, I was sort of proud that I was working with the neurotic well rather than than people who who were actually desperately in need of something. And there was an enormous education that took place for me. But it took Melissa's death to actually really instruct me that actually mental illness is a very important part of what goes on in our lives. And to to just go for the people who've got most of their act together and to help inspire them felt like I was really skimming the surface. What I particularly liked about what Malcolm had to say was the power of images, because a lot of our really painful material is stored in our unconscious And our unconscious doesn't work like our brain. The way it communicates with us is through images. And this image of all this painful material that's all been put together, in this case, what happened to his sister, what happened to his daughter, he is imaging as a dragon. And suddenly all of that material can be dealt with in a different kind of way. So I think that's what I found particularly impressive. I mean, the other thing that was impressive was just how much he was prepared to talk about his own stuff, because there is a tendency as a therapist to sort of try and hide your stuff, because your clients want you to be, for want of a better word, (laughs) I'm going to say it, perfect. 
I can understand what you mean there. Yeah. I mean, first of all, the imagery things, I think, yes, it's very powerful because it's a way of conveying what someone is experiencing. It's not factual. It's very um, alive, which I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's powerful. And the idea about our, our clients thinking as therapists needing us to be perfect, I think it's like one of those, it's almost a little bit like similar to a parent-child relationship. It's almost like where the child initially needs the parent to be perfect. But as we grow, we realize they're not. And that's a part of the truth about life. It holds both good and bad things. And if actually it's a sign that you're doing well in your therapy, if you can both hold the fact that your therapist has strengths and that they have weaknesses and that they are genuine human beings rather than, as you say, idolized parents. I mean, the other thing I like is the idea of slaying your dragons with compassion, because I've had people who, when they're presented effectively with their lost inner child, they sort of basically want to sort of strangle them, to be perfectly honest. They're certainly very nasty towards them. And so I think our dragons, as he says, need to be slain with compassion. I mean, compassion is so important, isn't it? Because it, compassion is what opens up the conversation. It opens up what we're feeling. And it's, it's a chance to face all of the difficult material, have those difficult conversations with somebody and be emotionally held while that's happened. So once you've got the image of slaying dragons with compassion, you then have some other things to think about. And I think this is particularly powerful. If you're going to slay a dragon, you're going to have a sword and you're going to have a shield. And so if you're going to face these problems, what shields have you got to protect yourself? And I think that's a very useful image to have with clients and actually think, you know, how are you going to protect yourself? How are you going to stop this from being too difficult? And what tools have you got to actually slay the dragon? You know, what is your sword? Mm. So it's developing that imagery on to try and help them make a connection with the way forward. I think that's what you're saying. Yeah. So that... Yes, there are dragons, but you're not going to face these dragons empty-handed. Let's think together, you know, what protection do you actually have? If somebody comes at you, uh, the dragon comes forward breathing fire, what are your boundaries? You know, uh, what, what protection have you got? Do we need to work on your shield? How sharp is your knife? That was another thing I liked very much about that particular program. So the next person you've chosen is Carla McLaren, who is an emotions and empathy expert and the author of the book, The Language of Emotions. What are your feelings trying to tell you? If you hadn't have chosen this one, I would have chosen it. So tell me what you liked about Carla. I think it, it is because, again, I suppose it's about facing emotions, because I find maybe with a lot of clients and, and you know, certainly historically with myself, emotions have been an annoyance, have been something you want to get rid of rather than listening to. So it's really important to start to develop a way to listen to what your emotions are telling you, because what they're telling you is really probably very important. I think we need to understand what strong emotions are for. What I have found is that emotions arise to deal with whatever's going on already. And 
many people don't see them that way. They notice that when there's trouble, there's always one or two or seven emotions. So they they attach the trouble to the emotions instead of understanding that the emotions came forward to deal with the trouble. So the more trouble I had in my life, the stronger my emotions were. And before I understood that, that they were there to help, I experienced emotions themselves as abusive, right? I was like, emotions are terrible. If I could just not have these emotions, my life would be perfect. And by incorrectly attributing the problem to my emotions, I was missing the entire story that was trying to come forward, right? And so now when I have a strong emotion, I don't say, you need to go have anger management training or something. I was like, whoa, okay, understanding what rage is about or anger is about, there's been a boundary crossed and I missed it. And now this emotion has come up at a, at a more intense, you know, whatever. Yeah. One of the problems is that we tend to divide emotions into good emotions and bad emotions, sort of mm-hmm. negative ones and positive ones. Mm-hmm. And if there's one thing I could change in this world, I think it would be this idea. What do you think? Yes, that's the first of my four keys to emotional genius is that there are no positive emotions and there are no negative emotions. Emotions are part of our basic capacity to make meaning and understand the world. And there's no bum ones. There's none that we shouldn't have. I think, as you may have seen, one of the problems with this bad idea is that people, when they know an emotion is supposedly negative, they will avoid it and pretend not to have it. So they don't develop any skills with it. How can you develop skills with something that you're told never to have or never to want? And on the converse side, People tend to stay in the emotions that they've identified as good or positive or pro-social, even when there's no reason to be there. So what happens with that good and bad mythology is that people don't develop skills in either type of emotion. What I've noticed is it tends to create an abusive relationship with emotions themselves. Certainly the ones that we try to push out of the house and pretend that we never saw them. And also the ones that we we keep near us and we force to show up no matter what's going on. So I think certainly the so-called negative emotions get, you know, experience a lot of damage from that. But the positive emotions, they're kind of thrown out into the world like you know, badly cared for circus ponies and made to dance for the audience. I think, yeah, I agree with you. If we could if we could remove one thing, it would be that valencing of emotion. So there are no bad feelings. That's quite a radical concept, isn't it? Because I think we really often split our feelings into positive and negative, which is... But that is a problem because we don't do what the subtitle of the book says. Ask the question, what are your feelings trying to tell you? And often it's trying to tell us something important. I mean, let's take one of those ones that are emotions that we think are bad emotions, and that is anger. Yeah, I mean, I think anger is so important because it tells you, it's like an alert signal, something's not quite right. But we we get so many messages about anger, depending where we grow up or what, you know, again, coming from family, that 
you could really receive a strong message and it may not necessarily even be said, but that anger is bad and we don't do that. And that could just be modelled. Because there's a big difference between healthy anger and the sort of anger that involves violence or abusive language. And somehow we blame the actions rather than the feelings. So the feelings are fine. You can have any feeling you want. You've got to actually make certain that you don't actually turn that into destructive actions. So the other of her signs of emotional genius that uh, she was talking about, I think might be worth talking about. She says it's important to understand the nuance of emotions. And she says they come in soft, medium and strong. Do you think it helps to understand the sort of the spectrum of each of these emotions? I wonder if the, the, the feelings that come in as stronger are the feelings that you haven't given enough attention to. Mm. So sort of soft and medium ones become strong because you've not listened to them. A bit like that lost in a child, it's going to tap on the door and say, let me in. And if you don't, after a while, it's going to start banging on the door, isn't it? Absolutely. So it's like a build-up of pressure. And I think as like you were referring to negative emotions or anger, we're not talking about them leading to rage and violence, but we're wanting to listen to them earlier. Because if we can understand the more maybe vulnerable feeling underneath, there can be a chance of, a chance of, in, it's like an internal resolution. Because again, I think it's about being heard. And I think you've touched on the important other point she wants to make is that we often have multiple emotions at the same time. So we might have anger, but we also might have a feeling of vulnerability and feeling lost as well. Mm. And I think sometimes the anger in those cases, in some ways, can cover those vulnerable feelings. They are almost, in a, in a strange way, they're a form of protection, which it's a form of survival that after a certain point kind of becomes counterproductive. So Sharon E. Martin is a doctor who graduated from John Hopkins School of Medicine and is a board-certified physician of internal medicine with a doctorate in physiology. But 18 years ago, she started to think there must be more to healing than what is in the Western medicine toolkit. And she started studying energy healing, and in particular, shamanic medicine practiced by indigenous people all over the world. She's combined the two very different strands of her training into a new book called Maximize Your Healing Power, Shamanic Healing Techniques to Overcome Your Health Challenges. Now, if at the beginning of this year, you told me I was going to be doing this program, I would have said, no way. And what I would never have believed is that I would have actually used this technique with other people. And I've had some really good results. So we're going to do a little exercise. So you can understand the exercise. I need to give you a bit of background if you haven't listened to this particular issue. I have a problem with implants. I have broken implants, which apparently is a very difficult thing to do. My dentist, who actually is a specialist who gets referrals from all over Berlin, where I live, only sees these once or twice a year. So the average dentist sees this once in their lifetime. Well, guess what? I've had about six examples of things only happen once in a lifetime happening to me. So 
I was effectively the letter writer on this edition and asked Sharon if she could help. And she gave us this exercise. Formulate in your mind something you want to know the answer to, something that's been bugging you. And then let's just start with some nice, easy breaths in with the nose, out with the mouth. And just allow yourself with your eyes closed to enter that altered state, that light trance state. Just allow your breath to carry you deeper below the noise of your human mind. Just allow it to carry you deeper. And follow my voice, whether you see it or feel it or know it. Just take your awareness from where it was looking out the back of your eyes and carry that through the inside of your head down. Let's move on down past your mouth, down your throat. And enter your chest and find yourself on the backside of the heart in the center of your chest. And you will know this or see this or feel it. Find yourself entering that tiny sacred space of the heart. And you'll know where it is. You'll know it. You'll feel it you'll sense it. Go ahead and enter in that sacred space and enter in and this will open up to a room and I want you to be aware of the room and I want you to look around and see how it's furnished, what makes it comfortable, see what the walls are made of. And sit yourself down, whether you're in a comfortable chair, on a couch, a pillow. Make yourself comfortable in this sacred space of your heart. And just feel that you're in this place where all your worries have gone. Everything has slipped away. And you know that you're ready to receive important information, and you know that you're ready to hear a message, something you may not have been aware of before. And as you're sitting there in this comfortable space, sacred space of your heart, invite the wise being that knows all about you Invite that being in, whether that's your guardian angel, a spirit guide, your higher self. This is the wise being that knows about your life. And just see the door in the room open and feel this being enter and take a seat in front of you. And just relax. You are in the presence of wisdom. You are in the presence 
of mastery. And in your mind's eye, first thank the being for coming and then ask what it is you want to know in your mind's eye. Ask this being what it is that you want to understand. And let's just take a few moments for you to get the message back. And if you need clarification, to ask another question. And take these messages in, however they come to you. You're in dialogue with the wise being of you. And your messages may just be colors or feelings or senses. Doesn't matter. Take what you get. If you don't quite understand, ask for clarity. And if you're told, I can't tell you now, don't be upset. You can come back here again and try again. Sometimes messages may not be available at this moment. And let's get ready to finish up any last things you want to know. And in every powerful altered state meditation or shamanic practice, you always end with gratitude and appreciation for the beings that share their wisdom with you. So allow the being to take its leave and you journey back out of the sacred space of your heart, up out of your chest, up through your neck until your awareness resides again behind your eyes and bring yourself back to this time and this space and come back now. Well, that was absolutely beautiful, Sharon. Thank you very much indeed. I went to, did you used to watch the original Star Trek um, television program with, you know, Captain Kirk Mm -hmm, and co? mm -hmm. It sort of, (laughs) I sort of went there and sort of all that sort of 60s stroke 70s high-tech glory Mm -hmm. sort of. And then, uh, you know how they used to have the sliding doors? I had sliding doors and I have a relationship with wolves and I had a wolf materialise. And so the message I got was, you don't have to bite to defend yourself. Mm, That's beautiful. So I'm not quite certain what that means. Well, isn't it interesting... We were talking about teeth, and you say bite, 
Well, I did ask, you know, the question, my question I went there is, you know, why are having problems with my teeth? So that was what I was asking for. But wolves do have wonderful teeth. Well, here's another thought. Is your tooth grinding a subconscious way of stealing yourself, S-T-E-E-L, stealing yourself to move into the future? powerful experiences. What do you think about these very alternative ways of approaching a psychological problem? I think it draws on that same element of imagery and connecting with something to find a deeper meaning. I think that's what's going on there. I mean, I think that we're getting in contact with the subconscious a lot of the time. So, Mm. you know, the images... Uh, coming up. And if you don't question them, you just sort of go with them and you suspend disbelief. And then you think, you know, what is this message that you've got? And you spend some time thinking about it. I think that you're going to have a different way of getting at a, a problem. And it's something that I found lots of clients will put things really well when you've put them in these kind of circumstances. They're finding sort of messages that they can really use. And in their conscious minds, they probably could have come up with something. But the fact it's come from so deep within helps us to really listen to it. So uh, I find it absolutely fascinating. And I think it creates like a placeholder maybe in our conscious mind as the connection to the unconscious. A placeholder. Expand on that for me. Well, I guess what I'm thinking of is it's like once you've made this connection in that way that you wouldn't maybe have easily come up with in your rational conscious mind. You've been through a journey as Sharon took you through there. And that you can remember that with your that's the placeholder. You know how to get back there. You know how to to access that information and what it's meant to you. And maybe if you're prepared to listen to your unconscious, it's going to say more to you because Mm. uh, it's sort of given up trying to communicate with you because you're not listening. So absolutely fascinating stuff. If you haven't heard that episode, I would definitely recommend going to do it. Now, the next one that John has chosen rather than me is Conroy Harris, who is the chief executive of a mental health charity called Band of Brothers. It offers rites of passage and mentoring to young men aged between 18 and 24 who are at risk or have been involved in the criminal justice system. So what interested you about this one, John? Well, I think one of the initial thing was that it's for men, and particularly for men, um, because men don't really always know how to deal and talk about emotions and actually really open up beyond, did you see that football match? How do you get men to open up? I have an advantage when men come to see me because they are wanting something. They've obviously come because they want something, and I think that helps because it's something that you can always go back to refer to. So when you are trying to get someone to open up and think about things in a little bit of a deeper way, there might be some blocks initially, but we can go back to, well, you told me that this is difficult because I think that's, that's a hard thing for a man to even admit something is difficult. And opening up to other men as opposed to women is something that is incredibly powerful. I've seen it over and over again. So in the interview, I asked 
Conroy, how disconnected are most men and young men in particular from their bodies? Are they actually in their bodies? Great question. There's two answers to that. There's the first, yes, they're aware that they have a body. And then there's the other side of it. They may not be aware when we say coming into the body, all our trauma, all everything that's happened to us within our life is actually stored within the body or the body holds the memory of all kind of our past wounds and our past hurts and being able to come in and getting to know what it feels like to kind of sit with that sense of how difficult life's been, where pain has been for us, where our emotional wounding is. People say, my heart is broken. Well, rather than go out there, externalise it and drink and take drugs to take the pain away, why don't I sit with that heartache that my body is actually giving me an opportunity to learn more about myself? That's truly coming home to the body. It's not just a physical thing. It's an energetic piece. I'm sorry, but sitting with the pain isn't sounding very attractive to me. I'm speaking as a client here now rather than as myself. But I mean, you know, when I try and sell the idea of let's actually just acknowledge the pain, it doesn't go down very well. It's not going to go down very well in this world of short-term fixing of kind of there's a pill to sort everything out in this world where we just have to look for the answer on the internet. Actually, it's a very simple old idea that to truly help ourselves along the road to levels of healing getting to know our pain. What's the word I'm looking for? It's a counterintuitive piece because something tells me that to push it away is going to be the the remedy here. Where actually by getting to know this and getting to kind of be with this, there's what we call gold in there. And I can drop to a deeper level of knowing myself. Very simply, my resilience as a human being expands the more I can be with the pain. Okay, let's try and bring this down to a sort of a level that we're going to understand. I'm sorry to ask such a personal question, but where did you find the gold in something as horrible as childhood sexual abuse? Oh, yes. Nice one. So for me, the gold in that was the mind and ability to be with other people facing such traumas and Ah. facing such pain. The gold from that is like, okay, Rather than that making me a bad person and the things I acted out from that place as a bad person, actually seeing that side of myself as a wounded child trying to find their way in the world and acting out from that place in the world, attacking others from that place, the anger, I was then able to actually be with the pain from that trauma. And being in that pain opened up the possibility of being just more comfortable with it. I'm more comfortable with it. I become more comfortable with others' pain. I mean, that was the most wonderful interview. There are times when I meet people and you can just feel the wisdom coming across the airwaves. And it really is a a privilege to be able to hear those stories. And it's something we're coming across over and over again. You've got to get to know your pain. Yes. I mean, and sitting with that pain, finding the gold in the pain. Mm. I think that's a wonderful phrase because it's something we, as you said, we all want. That doesn't feel like something people really want to do, but it could bring something really wonderful. So I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked Conroy. What gold have you found when you've mined your own pain? I think it's to connect with the story of my life. One thing I identified earlier in that podcast 
was really when he was talking about like a, I think I'd call it like a pseudo maturity. We grow up, we as boys, we're trying to find our way in the world. It's kind of the socialization of men is you go to the pub and you, there's a drinking culture and, you know, there's all these kind of different ways of being. Performing really, isn't it? Yeah, but you're not able to really be yourself. And there's a lot of pain that comes from that of hiding, I think. And so when you face what you've hidden from, <laughs> there's, there's some release from that. The gold is actually meeting your, the real self rather than the performing self. Yes. Well, when it comes to performance, I think one of the places that, in fact, I was going to say men perform, but I think women are also performing, is in the bedroom. We all want to be sexy beasts. But for most people, sex either is a chore or, in fact, is a problem. And Jan Day has spent 20 years leading workshops on intimacy and sexuality, so she knows a thing or two. She is the author of a new book called Living Tantra, A Journey into Sex, Spirit and Relationships. And together, we played a game to build connection with yourself and your partner. It's called I'm Aware. I will go first. I'm aware of a small amount of nervousness, which is now receding. I'm aware of a strange little tickle on my right foot. I'm aware of a desire to laugh. I'm aware of noticing my shoulders just dropping a little. I'm aware of your red dangly earrings. I'm aware of a worrying thought because sometimes my dangly earrings clunk in the noise and make a background noise. And I'm aware of a desire to reassure. I'm aware of my breath just settling I'm aware of my breath too. And I'm aware of a sense of warmth in my chest. And I'm aware of a sense of relaxation. And I'm aware of the light shining against your head. And I'm aware of the silence. And I'm aware of a tickling just on my upper leg. And I'm aware of a falling deeper into connection. I'm aware of a stillness settling. And I think that's probably enough to give people a, a sense of what it's about. But I think that people can notice actually how we became more aware of ourselves and more aware of the connection between the two of us as well. Absolutely. Yes, it was delightful. You can do it for quite a long time. It's lovely to do it at the beginning of a meeting with a partner whether you're going to make love or just connect for the evening, to do it for 5, 10, 15 minutes even and just drop and drop and drop together. And if you suddenly find yourself, you know, I'm aware of a sexual desire, you know, and obviously you're doing this with a lover and a partner, is that okay to talk about all of I mean, I've, Of course it's okay, but I feel the need to say, is it okay? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I think... When we don't have to bring big stories, when we can relax into ourselves, and especially to know, yeah, I'm aware of a sexual desire arising, and to know that our sexual desire is just our sexual desire. And actually, most of us feel sexual desire at all kinds of times, whether it's appropriate or not. Our sexual desire is just our sexual desire. Being willing to be aware of it and speak it 
doesn't mean anything has to happen with it. It just shows you this is who I am right now. Now, of course, there would be moments when it wouldn't be appropriate to say it, absolutely. But often it's a moment of sharing intimacy. It's an eternal problem, really, isn't it? How do you keep intimacy alive? What are your thoughts on the topic? Well, actually, when I listened to you doing that exercise, I was touched by how something in something so simple, it's almost like simplifying intimacy. Because when you ask me the question, how do you keep intimacy alive? The words string together just seems to produce shock and horror. How <laughs> you do that? But when you start to think, ah, you know, when you were actually saying, is I'm aware of this. I'm aware of we're having a conversation. I'm aware that I'm feeling this way and, and taking turns in that, you are starting just to open a door to become closer to somebody. And you're very much getting in contact with your body because quite a lot of those things were, you know, she was feeling an itch in her right hand sort of kind of stuff. So that we're actually getting out of our heads into our bodies. And unfortunately, I think a lot of time when we're having sex, we're going out of our bodies into our heads. And that's not a good place when you're having sex. Mm, yes. So, and it's about being able to communicate about what's happening in your body as well, isn't it? It's about you putting your attention there and telling the other person. I mean, one of the things that I always recommend to people is trying to put your attention into your fingers because your fingers are incredibly sensitive. We use them a lot of the time, you know, to to press buttons and to hold pens to write. We use them as tools, but they are actually very sensual things. And so instead of putting your attention into your head, am I doing it right? Put your attention into your fingers, what it feels like to stroke your partner. And that gets you out of your head, into your fingers, into your body. Or maybe you put your attention into your partner's fingers and where they're touching and where they're stroking you. And uh, I think that is a, a beautiful thing. I think an element that came up in this podcast as well that you, that you raised, it's, it's almost quite freeing to have the permission to think, let's forget about genital areas because we're just talking about connecting and touching. Yes, we have far too much attention on the genitals. I mean, you know, they give us lots of pleasure. But I think if you just become a head that's thinking and two pairs of genitals, that's not really very intimate. Mm, absolutely. Have you ever done any tantra yourself? No, it's not something I've really understood. I had, uh, I think it was even something mentioned in the podcast when you use that phrase, you have some ideas of some mystic eastern ceremony so this was a real introduction this uh, kind of idea of using these techniques yeah i mean i went away and did a, a weekend workshop after i did that and it was so down to earth it was so much just about having the ability to touch and be in the moment i would really recommend anybody to think about doing some kind of course like that so we've had three options each from the year. We've got one more to do, which we're going to do in the bonus material. Before we move to the bonus material, I have to ask you a question, John. As a witness today on The Meaningful Life, what makes your life meaningful? Well, I think one of the things that makes my life meaningful is my work with clients and the privilege that I have in being able to build relationships with them. And those relationships that help us both to gain a greater understanding 
about the emotional behaviors that may have led to blocks in their lives and in their relationships. And that when that understanding comes, things can start to change. It's a gradual process, but it's such a privilege to be able to see that in action. And one of the things that has surprised me that I sort of never thought when I started on this journey was I learn sometimes as much from my clients as they learn from me. It's it's quite surprising because you just see things suddenly differently. And that's some of the joy of working with people of just just how much I, I, I get out of it. Maybe I should be paying them rather than the other way around. I think that's exactly right. I feel like I gain so much as well. It's I know it's it's sort of that sounds a, a bit counterintuitive, but it, but it's true. So we've got two more choices. John has chosen a piece on anxiety in couples from Avram Weiss. Couples play this very unfortunate game called anxiety hot potato. So we'll talk about that. And I've been thinking a lot about forgiveness. It's something that I'm working on in my own therapy at the moment. And we'll be talking about forgiveness with Oliver Kleck, and we'll be doing that in a moment. If you want to hear that bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material this way, and what a wonderful resolution for 2024, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.